film likers and gracious thank yous for checking out scoring at the movie episode number 36 we chat about flicker shows with sports in them and we spoil them half to death or sometimes all the way to death i'm the illiterate mug who isn't good at trying to lose ryan ellis and here's the south sider who ain't no busher and always gives you the straight dope chris de gregorio thank you ryan <laughs> Off to the ballpark we go to see who wins this slugfest between the Cincinnati Reds and the Chicago White Sox. I wish we were not doing it accurately, but unfortunately, that's one of the biggest problems with this movie. Everybody tries a little too hard to sound like that, and they're not trying to do it ironically or humorously like we are right now. Your wife does a great version of the 30s voice. Yeah. Well, this is the teens. High but... pants, fast talking. Exactly. Yeah. Although, I guess this is not really 30s era. This is nope. 1919. This but... movie was 100 years ago this year, which is why we decided to do it right now. You mean the controversy? The controversy was 100 years ago, not the movie itself. Oh, yes, of course. The movie was 1988. Yeah, <laughs> This was a pre-talkie that we're going to cover this week. <laughs> it was color somehow, and the color wasn't in film yet. But before we get going, we're talking about the Black Sox scandal of 1919 and the Throne World Series against the Cincinnati Red Stockings, or Red Legs? Red they legs. were just reds at that point. They were red legs, and I think red stockings in their history, but at this point, I believe they were just reds. No, they were definitely called the red leggings, in the movie itself, anyway. Well, as you talk, I'm going to look at the old baseball reference page and see what it says. There you go, Cincinnati Reds. No yeah. red leggings, no red stockings. That's just a reflection of what the current day team name is? They were the red legs in 54 to 58. Oh, that's interesting. They and reverted. They the red stockings in the 1800s, 1882 huh. to 1889. So they were the reds, just reds. 1890 all the way through until 1954, but only for five years. That's weird. Were they the red legs, and they've been the reds again ever since. So that would be a goof in terms of the announcer, not the announcer, the guy that was reading the ticker tape or what have you, in the gambling den when Cincinnati took game eight over the Does White it say Sox. red legs? Yeah, red legs. Or they couldn't even call the red legs because they hadn't yet been called the red legs. If he had said red stockings, you'd say they're not that anymore. But okay, he's stuck yeah, they haven't been in that the for past. 30 years. But he's stuck in the past. But they weren't the red legs yeah. until another almost, what, 40 years? 35 years later? Yeah, unless that's the filmmaker's way of trying to subtly tell you that the whole gambling fix was a ploy by some guy from the future to somehow set up his ancestors to make a fortune. Well, both teams are obsessed with their footwear because it's red legs, if they were called that, or red stockings, but that's where the name obviously yeah. comes from. We've made that very clear. And then white socks. But also, they were the black socks before they were the black socks, I was reading, because yeah. the cheap owner, Charles Comiskey, wouldn't even pay to have their uniforms laundered, so they were apparently extraordinarily dirty through this season and probably previous seasons when he owned them. So they were called the black socks long before they were actually given that name because they cheated in the World Series in 1919. Given your lengthy and illustrious recreational softball career, including numerous titles yes. across various leagues, how many times have you been approached by sports fixers in the Toronto sports scene to throw a series, and how many times did you accept? Approached? Seven? Accepted? Seven. <laughs> <laughs> nope, I'm not going to go for humor here, I'm going to go for zero, because I'm going to tell you right now why this movie did not turn me on enough to be a good scoring at the movies type movie. Because I hate losing even more than I love winning. And then watching somebody deliberately lose does not turn me on. I was not turned on for even a second of this motion picture. That's fair. So good gag, but nobody would pay to have me lose. <laughs> and I would say no, no. Actually, you know what? With enough money, anybody would. Although watching them throw some of those games during the World Series, especially games one and two, reminded me quite a bit of our recent playoff loss yeah well, we were trying but we were pretty inept <laughs> we looked like the team that was trying to lose except we were trying to win <laughs> dun, 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 clunk although we didn't play that bad defense we just didn't hit that much in that game all right let's back up to what we should do in the beginning of the podcast and establish the beverages so i have got my traditional cc and diet you are drinking what eight man pale ale very good choice. seems like a very on the nose selection but what are you gonna do do you know about these, I guess you do, you're a beer guy, but do you know about these beer names sometimes when you go to the store and say, I'm going to pick eight men because we're doing eight men out? 
Or do you often or always go into the store and think, ah, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. A little of each? A little of each. A little from column A, a little from column B. You're a we're, beer guy. Okay. We're blessed by a very large beer selection at some of our liquor stores here, so makes it very easy to find something usually that's at least tangentially connected. Okay, well, in no honor, of, reason, but... honor of losing on purpose, let's toast here. Uh, Not really that clank. All right, so Eight Men Out is the movie of the day, and it was released by Orion Pictures, which also released Bull Durham that year. Big baseball year, in fact, because also Stealing Home came out a week before this movie, and it failed even worse than this one did. I've never even heard of Stealing Home. What Mark Harmon and I think Jodie Foster. I think baseball is just a small part of that one, but I always think of uh, it as a sports movie and a baseball movie because it's part of that big run at this time of baseball movies. And like I just said, this year, Bull Durham was in the spring. You got these two movies because this came out September 2nd, 1988. And then, of course, the next year, Field of Dreams, Major League. Despite enthusiastic word of mouth from the critics, this picture, Eight Men Out, did not make back even $6 million. It doesn't really surprise me. I think both of us are on the same page in that we both enjoy historic elements of baseball in yeah. various capacities. Mm -hmm. Like, I know you're a big stats guy in some respects. I'm a big stats guy in other respects anyway. So for something like this that delves into a historic incident in baseball lore... One right is, up our alley. It's right up our alley. When I was watching this, I was trying to look at it from two different perspectives. And it's something that maybe we should have done a little bit more of with something like Seabiscuit. I don't know enough about the history of horse racing in particular to delve too deeply into Nor that. Nor care. But in this case, I tried to look at this from one perspective. Do I like the movie as a movie, regardless of how it's actually connected to reality and actual events? And then second perspective, how do I feel it handled the actual historic event of the Black Sox scandal and so was it accurate? what is the score on those two fronts? Middling to fair on both fronts, I think. Uh, were you surprised that you felt that way? Because I was. I was too, actually. I, I own this movie. I loaned it to you. I've owned it for a long time. I remember thinking it was one of my favorite baseball movies. Me Not too. My two or three favorites, but in the top ten anyway. And I was disappointed. It's not badly done. There's a lot of baseball action. We get more baseball, or at least sports action in general. The baseball I we've was had actually in, good. Yeah, most of our 36 episodes, this is up there with the most, some of the most at least, that we've seen on field, on court, on ice action. Especially trying to mimic what the game looked like. Have you ever seen mm -hmm. some old clips from this era, or even slightly later? The way that they shot the baseball action in this movie and the way the actors went through the motions was very reminiscent of the way the game looked like it was being played in this era. So sure. I thought they did a really good job of the, that the, aspect. The of authenticity it. was good, sure. Yeah. So the baseball was good. And it doesn't drag for a fully two-hour movie, I wouldn't say. It's not slow, slow. It's paced all right. I don't know what it was. It might have been that I really noticed the... Nah, nah. Well, they don't talk like Edward G. Robinson, but that kind of antiquated way of talking. When English people do period movies, they don't really seem like they're antiquated or Americans that put on accents and talk like in 1400s or something like that it doesn't seem forced and phony even though obviously it is that's hundreds of years ago and if you're an American you're putting on an accent these guys in a way are putting on an accent too John Cusack for example the top billed actor he's in Stand By Me Bab and I covered that a few years ago it's a small role but a good role for him and then the year after this he's in Say Anything with John Mahoney they have a lot of scenes together in oh. this film and in that he is his troubled future son-in-law John Cusack as to John Mahoney has probably the most screen time, even though it's pretty well divided amongst all of them. But he is the one, despite his best efforts, who rings the most false with the way that he's talking. Like when he says to the kids, get your third sacker stance. <laughs> they said that back then, but he doesn't sound like... And I think he believes it, but I don't believe it, if that makes sense. I understand what you're saying. And there were a few moments where some of the... Would you call it like the diction of the way that the actors are trying to sure. use some of the slang? At the it just time? seems phony. I don't know. Some of but it, it's authentic the way they talked, I think. I think so, too. I'm not an expert on slang of the 1910s, 1920s. You mentioned John Mahoney, who plays the manager of the White Sox. Kid Gleason. Kid Gleason. He was probably the only actor of the bunch that had some lines that actually hit me in that way you're describing. And I think it was usually when he was talking about having the straight dope. It was just the way that he was using the expression. It felt like it wasn't natural, the way it came off his tongue. You're right, but I think it made a little bit more sense coming from him than it did from someone like Cusack, who's about half his age. I think Mahoney and yeah. David Strathairn are the two best things in this movie. David Strathairn David is the for soul sure. of this yeah. film as Eddie Seacott. We learn in Field of Dreams, I think inaccurately, they pronounce it Chakotay. Chakotay, yeah, yeah. Which looks like it could be that too, but apparently it is Seacott. And he is the best thing in this film, I think. He was always in John Sayles' films, because John Sayles was the writer-director and 
an actor in this. He yeah. plays Ring Lardner Sr. Ring Lardner Jr. wrote MASH many years later. <laughs> I agree with you. I think David Strathairn was the best thing in this movie. I like John Mahoney across the board, and I liked him fine in this, but I didn't think he quite lived up to that same level that Strathairn did. What I found interesting was apparently this movie spent about 11 years in development hell, and when David Strathairn first signed on to do the movie, it was to play the Joe Jackson character. But really? it took so long to develop and he get made. He was just too old. He was too old, so he ended up playing the grizzled vet Eddie Chicote, as you like to say, or Eddie Seacott. Knuckles. Knuckles. He's yeah. also called Knuckles in Field of Dreams. Although he's not throwing a knuckleball, he's throwing a shine ball. Back when you could still do that, it was legal, even though the ball was doctored. Spitballs were still legal back then. You hear some of the crowd say, "Give him the shiner, then give him mm. the heat," kind of thing, and then you see Seacott spit on the ball, rubbing on his pants, trying to get that disparity of texture on the ball, so it gets a lot of spin and movement. Mm. Now, you mentioned, though, when you were talking about the accents and the language usage, and maybe John Cusack in the most screen time, but you're not really sure, because it is an ensemble piece with these eight guys. You get Chick Gandal, you get Seacott a lot. You get less Joe Jackson, you would think, in this, given that he's kind of the best known of the bunch. Certainly the most famous. The one who should absolutely be in the Hall of Fame right now, based just on his accomplishments on the field. The other guys, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, You could make the argument for a guy like Seacott. He had quite a good career. Uh, Weaver hadn't quite played long enough. Eddie Collins is on this team, but wasn't one of the people that was under suspicion. And he's a Hall of Famer. He'd already had a great... Well, then again, if he'd been involved in the scandal, it wouldn't have mattered about his career before this, having enough numbers... He wouldn't have been in the Hall of Fame either if he'd actually been implicated, but he wasn't. He wasn't one of the cheaters. It seems like the filmmaker was trying to throw you into the lives of the players and the fans in the postseason immediately in the subsequent aftermath, and everything around it was less important. They wanted you in that mindset. But you get, early on, a very brief quasi-montage of some baseball being played. You get a little bit of introductory shots of each of the players making plays. One of the last games of the season. Exactly. They've already clinched, maybe. There's not a lot of individuality to these guys. And for eight kind of similar-looking white guys, all wearing the same uniforms and all with the same hairstyles, it's difficult for them to distinguish themselves. Even when I knew, okay, that's Lefty, and that's Chick Gandal, and that's Hap, and you get who the actors are in terms of who the characters are, it still didn't mean a whole heck of a lot to me, because I know Lefty's a pitcher, and I know that Chick Gandal's a first baseman, and I know Chick is a gambler, but I don't really know much of anything about any of the guys, and I don't particularly care about many of the guys, and I don't really know why they're supposed to be pissed off. We get a lot of telling us... You know, like the show versus tell aspect. They should probably have the dirty uniforms if that's part of what was going on with the White Sox, but they don't really. The opening credits, Mm -hmm. the floating about in the clouds as the... It's supposed to be a fly ball, I think. The arc of a fly ball didn't really make sense to me. I read that online and I thought, that's not really a fly ball arc, but okay. It was kind of a lazy looper, I guess. Is this Angels in the Outfield? I don't understand what this is supposed to be, the shot. And I felt like it was a big missed opportunity because you could have thrown up additional sequences of gameplay or headlines about the 1917 White Sox, the 1918 White Sox, oh, yeah. leading into the 19... Like the wrestler does, which establishes his history as a wrestler. Exactly. Successful wrestler. And I think I really missed that, because when you're thrown into the fray immediately, and you're trying to associate with these players, and what their deal is, what the team's deal is, and why do they hate Comiskey so much, and why are they so susceptible to this gambling scheme, I didn't feel like that was terribly well established. There are two things they think are good enough. One is when they win the pennant. Because I said they'd already clinched. I guess the game we're watching where Joe Jackson hits a triple. That was really well shot, too. That was well shot. You see D.B. Sweeney hit the ball, and he runs all the way to third. It's one shot. Really well done. But then when that game's been won, they get the flat champagne. So here you go, guys. Way to go. But it's flat. So that's supposed to set it up. And then the bigger one, I guess, would be when Chakoti goes in to talk to Comiskey. Kami. What did I say? You went with the... Good God. Chakoti... Told myself before we started, don't do that. All right, so Seacock goes in to talk to Kami, incidentally. Yeah. I like that his nickname. It makes sense. It'd be Kami the when he's Comiskey. No, but Kami's around this time. We're becoming a thing, as in communists. And he's now red. But ironically, in the World Series, they're playing the Reds. Don't forget, Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Was a commie buster. Was a commie buster and one of the great names in history. Oh, yeah. It? So, okay, so finishing that point. Yeah. Seacock goes in to talk to Comiskey about getting a bonus for winning 30 games, which he would have done if he'd had enough opportunities, but he was benched for five games. Would have won at least two of those, but this team might have won even more. And he's right, but at the same point, as Comiskey says, 29 isn't 30, Eddie. But that's, I think, what this movie's trying to say, is those two incidents are enough to put out that these guys are desperate for money, and they're pissed off with their owner as well. And maybe other owners would like this in other teams. Eddie Collins was on a White Sox his whole career. He was with the A's, I believe, before this. Right. So they probably experienced this with other owners. And also $10,000 that they were supposed to all get was a lot of money 100 years ago. 
You mean as part of the gambling yes. payoff? Now, yes. they shouldn't be trusting gamblers because what do you do if they screw you, which they do? You can't go to the cops. Yeah. And the gamblers know that. That's why they screw them. And what I love, too, is when Chick is trying to get some of the other players on his side to get in on this scheme. Okay, well, are we going to throw one or two games? Or do we have to throw the whole series? Like, yeah, we'll just throw the first game. They'll pay us and then we'll win. Aren't they going to be mad about that? Ah, oh, what are they going to do? Go to the cops? Ha ha ha. But then when the gamblers screw the players, it's like, what are you going to do? Go to the cops? Ha ha ha. They're both thinking about how powerless the other side is going to be when they inevitably screw one another. The players are the ones who are really powerless, though. Of course, yeah, because they're also the ones that are susceptible to violence, which is obviously what happens to Lefty Williams in the movie later on when he decides, I'm going to win this game, and nope, you're not going to win this game because your wife's going to die if you do. I think I heard somewhere years ago, long before I even saw this movie, that they were going to shoot him on the mound if he didn't pitch badly. I would and they lost that. game eight of this nine game World Series. I still feel like you could have done a better job of laying out what the players actually were going through as an entire body. I mean, all of MLB. And I also appreciate that this is based on a book, which is quite an inaccurate book too, from the 1960s. Oh, yeah? Incidentally, before you go on there, Elliot Asinoff wrote this, not Isaac Asimov. Elliot Asinoff wrote this. Right. The book came out in 1963. The movie came out in 1988. The Dodgers, not that they're connected to this movie, but the Dodgers won the World Series in 63, and the last time they ever won the World Series... is 88. Is 88. Interesting. Back to your point, though, about the book. <laughs> the inaccuracies in the book. And this is where I had to split my perception of what makes for a good movie and what is actually accurate. Also understanding what was in the book might not have been accurate, and this was based on the book. So there's a whole couple of levels here. The book and the movie try to play Comiskey as this grand villain which may or may not have been true. I don't really know much about Comiskey's history. He's a sports owner. The odds are pretty good. It's pretty good, but he was also a player. There's a line in the movie early on where he talks about how there's no room for individuals on this team and everyone's going to pull together and we're going to win as a team. Nobody's above the team. The team Kid Gleason, the manager, was a pitcher for the Philadelphia Quakers long before, incidentally. Exactly a 500 record. Yeah, too. very mediocre player yeah. back in his day. Well, I think Comiskey's lifetime batting average was like a 264 batting average. Again, like a very middling player. But they play off the whole salary aspect of things, and they play off what a cheap bugger Comiskey is, and there's a couple things that are inaccurate about the whole thing. First of all, you talked about Eddie Seacott and that whole $10,000 for the 30th win. There was never a bonus promised him for 30 starts. 30 wins, yeah. 30 wins, rather. Nor was he ever benched in September. In 1919, he missed two starts in September, but he later said that he had arm pain and he couldn't pitch those two starts. Likewise, the champagne thing... In 1917, when they won the pennant or the World Series... World Series. They were champions two years before this movie. Yeah. Or this season. But when one of the players was later interviewed decades later, and I think it might have been Hap. Hap, Hap Felch. Yeah, yeah. Charlie Sheen's character. The only nice thing or the only extravagant thing he ever remembered the old man doing, the old horse Comiskey doing, was sending them a case of champagne for winning. And again, that's why I can't remember if it was for the pennant or when they won the World Series. And it was never said, oh, it was a flat champagne. It was just like, here's a case of champagne and off you go. And then that somehow became 1919. It was a case of flat champagne. And it just became this, like apocryphal story after the fact. Okay, yeah. And part of this is not, incidentally, the fault of the author in 1963. Because he might not have had all of the information. And a lot of what this guy did as an author, when you learn about how he did his research, is kind of screwed up. He interviewed, I think, two people. One player who was apparently a bit of a dunce. And he interviewed the former Philadelphia boxer that turned mobster gambling fixer, Christopher Lloyd's right-hand guy in this movie. I can't remember the actor's Richard name. Richard Edson. Billy Maharg, it says yeah. here. Yeah. And Abe... Lloyd's character is Bill Burns, who was a pitcher. Oh, no, sorry. Abe Attell was the source. At that point, he was an elderly man in the 60s and was well-known for wanting to spin a yarn, tell a tale. His reliability as a source is highly questionable. The author of the book didn't use any court transcripts when talking about the trial. He used newspaper clippings from the time. And at the time, reporters weren't allowed into the courtroom. The reporter, he's a story from somebody who was there and then writes probably a bit of an embellished story. Then I come as an author and I read that embellished story and I embellish it further. Over 40 years later. Over 40 years. So it becomes broken telephone, right? In the early 2000s, they had what were called transaction cards. And that was MLB team's way of recording salaries, contracts, and all that thing. Essentially, sort of like library cards. And those were given to the Baseball Hall of Fame in the early 2000s. That was the first time that researchers, that authors, were able to look at the player-by-player -player salaries from at least the American League. Apparently, the National League salaries were not as well kept in this era. And actually see what every player was actually making, what the payrolls actually were. This year, this 1919 year... The White Sox were the third highest payroll in all of Major League Baseball, behind only the Yankees and the Red Sox. 
Little has changed in all these years. Yeah, not a lot has changed. The White Sox wouldn't be number three anymore, but... And by 1920, they had the highest payroll in baseball before Comiskey suspended the players that... Well, Mount Landis did, Judge Mount Landis suspended Sorry, suspended, them. but Comiskey gave them their outright release immediately upon their suspension, so it cut the payroll. But up until that point, they would have had the highest payroll in okay, baseball. Because right. they played the 1920 season. They finished two games back at Cleveland, did not go back to the World Series right. that next year when they still had the same roster. It's interesting the way the story has morphed over time, and this is both in the public perception in the world generally, but also in the movie. What would have made a more interesting movie, and maybe there will be a future version of this tale that gets told eventually that will encompass this, now that we know more than we did maybe in the 1960s when this book was first written, that focuses more generally on the players and how shit upon they were as a group rather than the White Sox in particular. Because match-fixing at this time was also far from unheard of. The only reason that this became an indictment against these eight players to begin with was because... They got caught? Yes, but no. The reporter that wrote stories about them, who was not in this movie, the characters in this movie were not the reporter that actually wrote about these players in the World Series, he was viewed skeptically at the time. In the movie, you see the World Series finish, and then immediately there's this big hubbub of newspaper articles, investigations, trial, and it seems like it's happening immediately. Like you said, they played most of the 1920 season, and it was only at the very end of the season when Landis suspended these players after they were found not guilty on indictment. By an actual judge and jury. By an actual judge and jury in Illinois. And the only reason that trial even happened was because there was another game, and I think it was Philadelphia... That was fixed, and that came to light out of Philadelphia, and everyone said, okay, hold on a second, we need to investigate this gambling stuff. an issue here. Yeah, so you, Mountain Landis, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, you're going to be our new commissioner, we're going to have an investigation, a criminal investigation, and on Ultimate power is what you have also, which is very important. Owners wanted, supposedly, to root out the gamblers and not to hurt the players, and Comiskey... It's not Clifton James's fault the way he plays the character as Comiskey. I think he's fine in the movie. Oh, he's yeah. the boss, Carr. He's the guy, not the boss, I guess they're, the boss is the bad guys. He's the one that runs the rooming house part of the jail in Cool Hand Luke. So he's on their side a little bit. Right. He's a big part of That's the, right, the egg yes. sequence in that movie. But anyway, it's not his fault. I think he plays the character just fine. But in the trial, he seems like he's both mad at the players and also sort of happy that they're not going to go to jail because he still keeps these great baseball players in this team that he wants to succeed and draw fans and maybe win a World Series in 1921, 22, and so on. You see in the movie, he hires effectively the best lawyer that money can buy to represent the players because they can't afford to really hire much of a lawyer themselves, which is true to life. They had some very expensive lawyers acting on their behalf, although I don't think it was ever made clear in reality whether Comiskey... And the White Sox actually paid for them or not. But the transcripts go missing, and I got the feeling that Comiskey was involved in that. How does that happen? How do they not have copies of the transcripts that these guys said? Apparently you see Strat there and at least talk to the grand jury. We were crooked. We did it. Oh, you got us. The transcripts that went missing, again, in the movie, it's played for drama. You're in the middle of a trial, and they say they have quote-unquote signed confessions, which never existed in reality. Somebody stands up and says, Your Honor, we don't have the confessions. They were stolen. And, oh, there's pictures being taken. Again, reporters wouldn't have been in the courtroom in 1919 either. But in reality, there were three players that gave testimony to the grand jury. And this would have been testimony, presumably, before the trial about what they were going to say at trial. The legal system in the U.S. is a little different from ours, so I'm not 100% clear about what the purpose of that is. It's probably changed also in 100 years. Probably, yeah. So there were transcripts of those three players, not signed, and they were kept with the state attorney in Illinois. That attorney changed. Between the giving of those transcripts and the beginning of the trial, there was a new attorney that came on. And apparently the suspicion is the outgoing assistant for the old attorney took the transcripts with them, whether it was for a memento because they were a baseball fan, whether it was just piss off, I lost my job, so I'm mad, I'm going to take these. So it was the assistant apparently that took them, or that's the suspicion. But the thing is, that was known well in advance of the trial starting. So they had copies made. And those copies were read to the jury at the trial. So anything those three players admitted to in their testimony, which I don't think exists anymore, the jurors heard and was part of the trial. It wasn't this great omission that led to them getting a not guilty verdict because the things were stolen. Whatever was in them was known. Okay. All right, so let's back up to the nutshell and the numbers on the movie. Yeah, we've really gone deep into this without going into the actual nutshell. More than 20 minutes. Hold on, got to get loose here. Get back into the 1919 vibe. Chicago blows in big show. FOMO doe. Oh no, Joe. 
Please tell me the facts are incorrect. <laughs> you ever feel like you miss the calling and not being a sports reporter at yes. the turn of the century? Or a voice actor oh, doing man. impressions. If I do them all right, I think I do okay, especially with Rocky. But that reminds us, of course, the most famous line, not really in sports, I guess, but sports related, because it was after this trial, supposedly, where some kid said to Joe Jackson, say it ain't so, Joe, say it ain't so. And apparently what he really said was, say it didn't really happen. But what I loved about that scene in the movie is that there's all this hubbub, rah, 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 outside, as there would be. Everyone's trying to ask him <laughs> questions. <laughs> 40 people are asking, at the same time, Joe Jackson questions. Everybody shuts up when this kid's, I think he maybe interrupts them, but they all shut up. <laughs> whoa, 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 guys. The child has something this, to say. This kid has something to say. Come on, quiet down, folks, quiet down. But they had to get that scene in this movie because it's one of the most famous things from this entire scandal. Yeah, and it was one of the few scenes that actually focuses much on Joe Jackson. I think I could count probably on one hand the number of scenes that were Joe Jackson-centric, leaving aside the actual But ironically, the plays. end of the movie is all about him. Buck Weaver watching him play yeah. baseball. Field of Dreams isn't really about Shoeless Joe either, but he's certainly the central baseball player that is portrayed in that movie. In this one, he's obviously their best player and their key player. We don't do it with the crooked deal. We don't go with the gamblers if we don't have Joe Jackson. And even more so, I guess, it would be Seacott. They need them both to make this work. But then Shoeless Joe takes the money, and as we know in Field of Dreams, Costner goes on about this at length, he never tries to lose. Neither does Buck Weaver, who knows about it, but doesn't actually take their money. Right. But Shoeless Joe has the best series of any of them, and Buck Weaver hit really well, too. Didn't end up mattering. One thing about this movie, one of the many things that are frustrating about the way they portray it, is that both Weaver and the catcher, Ray Schalk, because Gordon Clapp as Ray Schalk has a lot of screen time in this movie, of the <laughs> non-stars. Yeah. He has more screen time than Charlie Sheen does. Of course, Sheen wasn't really a star at that point. He'd been in Platoon, and he was going to be a major league. But anyway, so Schalk and Buck Weaver throw a lot of tantrums and fits in the field, throwing their gloves down. And Weaver is so mad these players swap him, but he knows they're trying to cheat. Yeah, what are you doing? You know what they're doing. Exactly. You were part of all the meetings. Just like in game one where, well, not all the meetings, maybe, but he knows what's going on. He was on the train and heard them talking about it, even though he didn't want to take the money. And he hates losing, like I said earlier. But Seacott and Gandal in the first game, so Michael Rooker, Davis, Rathern, constantly looking at each other with these knowing looks. Swede Risberg, the shortstop as well. Guys, a little more subtle. No wonder they're wondering what's going on. And Ring Lardner and Hugh Fullerton, that's Studs Terkel. You said you liked him before we started recording. I really liked him. Yeah. Only movie he ever actually acted in. He was a writer and historian. So they're the two guys you see all the time together. He was my spirit animal in this movie. If yeah. I had an existence in this era, I would be the cranky, cigar-chomping, whiskey-swilling guy, making the odd smart-ass remark. You've been the... doing this for a long time. Yeah. But they say, let's compare scorecards to see who's crooked, and they're circling names and circling pictures as the movie plays out. And of course, Weaver and Schalk and the rest of the players don't know they're doing this, but stop sulking and throwing fits in the field. We've seen little kids with more composure than these two guys have. <laughs> Plus, it's one play. We've all seen baseball games where you're down six runs and you win by two or something in the end. So I thought that was a little badly portrayed as well, although the baseball generally is well portrayed. Okay, so the numbers. 86% of critics like this film. I was a little surprised to see 86. That is surprising. 7.1 out of 10 and 80% of audiences. Very good scores. It was 116th, 116 at the 1988 U.S. box office. Rain Man, which Bev and I covered last year, was number one. Roger Rabbit. Who framed? We also covered last year was number two and Bull Durham. <laughs> right. Roger Rabbit, comma, comma who, who framed. framed. Exactly. I'm renaming the movie. And then Bull Durham, which was released by Orion Pictures earlier this year, was number 18. And Bev and I covered that also. And this movie, Eight Men Out, was nominated for the top 100 genres in the sports category. I think that's fine. But I guess I'm making clear that I'm a little disappointed this movie. Didn't dislike it, but didn't like it as much as I have in previous viewings. And maybe it's an era thing. The director of this movie... Who actually is in it as well. Also a little bit bogus the way he's talking though. Even though I guess that's accurate to the way they talk. But he doesn't really sound like he's selling it. Oh. He apparently looks a lot like Ring Lardner, the real guy. That's why he played him. Oh, I see. I don't okay. think he acts in his movies really often. If you ever want to see a movie of his beyond this, Lone Star is the movie you should see. Matthew McConaughey. Oh, yeah, yeah. part of his career's on that. And Chris Cooper is the main part of that film. Good I like, film. I like Chris Cooper. Yeah, he and the actor that plays Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Mm-hmm. Man, that guy looks exactly like the actual judge did. The, Probably why the, the he was crazy cast, white yeah. hair and everything. So anyway, he didn't use any other sports movies as templates. He didn't want to focus on any past depictions of baseball. He was trying to depict the sport and the players in the most accurate light possible. And some of what he did, the actual playing of the game, made a lot of sense to me. But like we talked about already, I think where the movie really falls down is giving the characters some explicable motivation in a way that actually makes sense, and in a way that is not cartoon villain-ish. We're doing it to spite Connie because he's such a cheap bastard. The other thing I found interesting was, yes, it was a great team, but the Reds had a better record. I know, I wanted to bring that up, we'll talk about it right now. The Reds had eight more wins. And granted, the National League at this point 
was the inferior league to the American but League. But I looked at that earlier before you got here today. Cleveland was second place, so they reversed yeah. it the next year. Cleveland finished first. Cleveland and the Yankees and whoever else weren't right behind them. They were three and a half back, Cleveland was, and so on. There were some terrible teams in the American League, terrible teams in the National League. But I'm thinking in terms of talent across the teams. The Yankees had Ruth, I think, at this point. Of course, Gehrig and those other guys were still yet to come. I think Ruth in 1919 was still on Boston. Because they won the World Series the year before this movie takes place. The Red Sox won their last World Series until 2004. It was 1918. The Red Sox, well, White Sox, I mean. White Sox, 17. Red Sox, 18. Reds, 1919. The only reason I know that is because in 1919, the Red Sox highest paid player was Babe Ruth. He made $10,000. Compare that to Joe Jackson, and this movie was making $6,000. Doesn't seem like they're hugely underpaying Joe. Babe Ruth, at this point, is the best player in the game. Unquestionably. Shoeless Joe's more talented, but Ruth is also more of a draw. He's also, at this point, a pitcher and the best hitter in the baseball, right. minus maybe Ty Cobb, who was the highest paid player in baseball. Oh, he was? Okay. And you look at Joe Jackson making $6,000. He didn't play in 1918, because he had gone to work in the shipyards during the war. And in 1917, he had his worst year. He We're hit look this up. 19... Shoeless Joe. So 1917s with the White Sox. Yeah, he 18, 18, he played 17 games only. So he got a new contract in 1919 for $6,000 coming off a year where he barely played and a year before that when he had his worst year of his career. Only hit 301. I know, right? Loser. So $6,000 then by comparison to Ruth makes a little bit of sense. But the reason I mention all those salaries is because in the National League at this point, they actually had a salary cap for National really? League. Yeah, they, National League teams. They could only spend something like $11,000 a month on their payrolls, which worked out to the neighborhood of like fifty eight dollars to $60,000 a year for the teams. The White Sox, I think, had an overall payroll close to $80,000. So if the AL's working with an uncapped payroll, even if your owners are kind of cheap asses, where the NL is working with a very limited salary structure, you're likely going to have the better teams in the American League because you can afford to trade for and pay the best players in the game, ultimately. Or more so, right? But ironically, the White Sox did have the worst record. I wouldn't have expected that, except I think I knew that from before. But when I first looked that yeah. up years ago, I was surprised to see that the Reds must be terrible. They won 84 games, and the White Sox won 140 or something like that, even though yeah. they played 154 total in the whole season. But that's not the case. The White Sox only won 88 games, as good as they were. The betting line for the White Sox to win was they were a 7-4 to favorite or something to mm-hmm. win the World Series. And then by the time this series actually began, so much money had poured in on the Cincinnati side of things that the line was effectively even money. And that was one of the suspicious things. Of course, why wouldn't it be? Well, Christopher Lloyd, in the beginning of the movie, he's our on-screen narrator, which I guess is necessary in some ways to explain who everybody is. But he's also talking about doing the gambling deal in the stands around other people. Maybe they're not paying attention to what he and Richard Edson are saying, but... (laughs) Hey, Ryan, let's talk very loudly in this public space about this... uh, Something highly illegal. ...illegal gambling deal. (laughs) Ain't nobody care about this. I've been at a lot of baseball games, and we've talked about things other than actually the game itself. But it's never been about something illegal, I don't think. Well, murder here and there. but Ixnay on the illegal activity. (laughs) Incidentally, speaking of Christopher Lloyd, one of the funniest moments in this movie to me was when he was on the stand in the grand jury trial. He's giving Mm -hmm. his testimony. And I wasn't clear, the guy asking the questions, I wasn't clear whether he was part of the defense team, whether he was a defense attorney for the players. Because he wasn't the guy we see talking to Comiskey, but based on the way the questions were being posed... It sounded like he was acting on behalf of the defense. I think the prosecutor, in some ways, doesn't want to get the guys. They supposedly want to just get the gamblers. Right. But how do you not get the guys if you get the gamblers? You have to get both. He's asking all the questions of Christopher Lloyd. You're pissed off because they didn't throw the games the way you wanted to, so you lost all the money you had made betting on the first two games. So this is really for revenge, isn't it? Yeah. And then he just, for no apparent reason, just says... You don't like me very much, do you, Mr. Whatever Christopher Lloyd's name is? Bill Burns. Mr. Burns, do you? Mr. Burns. (laughs) What did you do to this guy? You're just an attorney asking questions in a trial. This guy's here of his own volition. He doesn't show up in this trial unless he's made himself available to the defense or the prosecutor. He could be subpoenaed. He could be, but his involvement in the case is only what they know it to be, right? So unless he comes forward and says, hey... I was part of the scheme. I was the one that made the bets or facilitated. How the heck do they know that he's even involved? Michael Lerner is the big gambling boss. Arnold Rothstein, he's the chief, the head cheese in all this. The guy Actually, I thought maybe so it was... long, suckers. Right, exactly. He really got away with things. I thought maybe he was supposed to be Sam Rothstein from Casino, because De Niro's character in Casino is based on a real guy, Sam Ace Rothstein, but it's Arnold Rothstein, so mm-hmm. just coincidental, same last name. Maybe he just runs in the family. They could be related. I didn't look that up. Casino's what, 50s, 60s? Something like that, probably 60s. 40s. 
Well, yeah, the whole story could have started earlier. I don't remember exactly, but yeah, not so that 30 far. Thirty to apart, forty years after. That's this? one thing that's frustrating. Incidentally, speaking of the trial and talking about Comiskey and even the prosecution, and I guess the gamblers too. But in some ways, I'll leave them out for this point. The owners always get away with this shit. It's like during the strikes we saw, especially in '94. The players are the ones who are bad. They're all, well, they get too much money. The owners are so much more money. Unbelievably so. And you're going to side with the people who make a lot less than the owners do. And the reason why you're watching this is because of them. You're not watching some fucking owner run around the field in some uniform with his bulging body everywhere, obviously. <laughs> yes, it's their investment, but now, fuck off. What part of his body is bulging specifically? Probably right? all of it. He was a fat old man. <laughs> but the owners always get away with this in reality and in this movie. And incidentally, speaking of all this cheating and everything, and people being on the take, has no one ever said, Mike Tyson, when he lost to Buster Douglas, the 1988 Oakland A's, the Dodgers pitched really well, but an awful offense, and they're missing their best player, Kirk Gibson, who only hit that well. It was a big home run, but otherwise didn't play in the whole series. Or any of the Yankees teams in their dynasty in the more recent era, the early 2000s, after they'd won four World Series in five years, but they didn't win again until 2009, and they had a better roster with A-Rod and everybody else. Has no one ever said, were they on the take? I shouldn't accuse them necessarily, Tyson, the A's, the Yankees, or any other team who should have won because it's like that speech on any given Sunday. I watched that again recently that Pacino has the locker room speech. Do it in the Pacino voice. (laughs) The inches we need are so small, whatever that, I forget the exact, but the point being that you're a second too fast and you miss it. The inches we need in life and in football. But he's right because even great teams in any sport can have an off night or be just barely off by that inch or even the centimeter, that millimeter, whatever. Timing sometimes is everything and dumb luck does happen. Yeah. But I just wonder if the Dodgers were a far less, well, then again, they beat the Mets, who were also really good in 88 in the previous series. But how did the Dodgers beat both the Mets and A's, who were far better teams? Except I guess the answer is sometimes it happens, especially when you have Oral Hershiser on your team. And to some extent, even though it was hurt so much, Kirk Gibson. Yeah, and Mike Tyson wasn't really trained well against Buster Douglas. I'm ruining my own point here. <laughs> You're really just, undercutting that point. But the idea that, oh my God, the Black Sox in 1919 were so wicked. Give me a break. You're telling me that no other team or player has ever done something like this no. before or since? So I think the reason that this team was such a big thing was because this 1919 team, even though we talked about they had the second best record in MLB baseball at the time, was viewed as a super team. Because of everything that happened, the betting lines, the subsequent evidence of other match fixing that shined an even greater light on an already suspicious World Series, and the fact that it was the World Series itself. Gambling in sport, and gambling in baseball in particular, I think was a known quantity going up until this point, but this was such a potential risk to the integrity of the game, especially coming out of the First World War. And that's another aspect of this that the movie doesn't do a great job of really talking about, and I think that hurts it a little bit. There's a one-off line early on that indicates it, but doesn't really go into much detail. Baseball had suffered during the First World War, as you might expect. But coming out of it, 1919 was the best year the sport had ever had, as far as popularity and attendance and all of that. So this was a real black mark on a banner year for the game, hence the creation of the commissioner of the league, which had never existed before, and the appointment of Landis, who was a real hard-ass And by all accounts, it worked to a certain degree because quotes that I saw from the era and players talking about it said before Landis suspended these eight players, including some of the, one of at least, the greats of the game, you would know that guys in your locker room were taking money to throw games and you wouldn't say anything. And then after that, you would hear about it. Or if you did hear about it, you would say something. Like Buck Weaver didn't. You were worried that you would fall into that group and you, like Buck Weaver, would be innocent but still cast out of the game. So I think it worked to a certain degree. There's been all kinds of scandals in soccer, international soccer in particular. Boxing, of course. Basketball and the officiating and point shaving. Mm -hmm. We know it happens. I think what's changed, though, is in the modern era, you talked about owners versus players and the disparity of wealth. And you're not wrong. But when you're talking about how much athletes made in 1919 and their rationale for wanting to accept a bribe to throw a game, if you're making the equivalent of forty or $50,000 in 2019 money, let's say three to $4,000 in 1919, you're more susceptible to that versus 2019 when they think the major league salary minimum for a rookie is $700,000 or something. Mm. The average salary is much, much higher than that. You already talked about how you don't want to lose, period. And I think that's true of a lot of athletes. But if you're trying to hold financial gain over somebody's head, if I'm a gambler and I say to you, Ryan, I'll give you $500,000 to throw this game. And you say, I'm already making $10 million this year. Why would I risk my endorsements, my legacy, my career? 
For not that much money, actually. Yeah, for what... I mean, it's a lot of money in any real-world terms. But to but, them, it's pocket change. Yeah, exactly. And then if you're one of these gamblers, how much money are you thinking you can make on this thrown game? You think you can make $10 million, in which case you have to give somebody $5 million of it in order right. to make so it So it's not happen? worth it, I guess, is what you're saying. In some respects, I don't think it is. And I think that's part of the reason why you hear about it in soccer now, because you can bribe an international official in Africa, in Asia, in the Middle East. And there's no way they're making that much money. Right. I'm sure you could give them $50,000 and they might throw a match for you and you can make millions of dollars off of it. Whereas if you tried to bribe an NFL player, an NHL player, an MLB player, it's going to be way more costly and probably less effective than if you just try to find other ways of doing it. So, I do wish the cheating in this, have we already said this, was portrayed better. When they boot grounders... It's not dreadfully terrible, but it's more a matter of the knowing looks. And they do it way too often. If they did it once in a while, it'd be one thing. Although I'm thinking here right now that you can groove a pitch like Seacott and certainly Lefty Williams do in their game. Seacott does win once, but Williams gets hammered in his, I think, two starts. Yeah. Dickie Kerr pitches really well, but he's not in on the fix. You can groove a pitch, though, and the guy can still miss it easily. Especially now. These guys didn't throw 97 miles an hour with regularity. But some of these pitchers these days can throw the ball so hard. If they were on the take, and I think you're probably right, they're probably not. But if they were, it doesn't mean the hitter's going to hit it when you throw it that hard. If you start throwing at 90 and you're capable of 98 to 100, that might be suspicious. Yeah. But short of that, okay, here it is, hit it. A lot of guys, even the best hitters, can't necessarily put the ball in the players. Certainly not hit a home run or a line drive single. The inches we need. <laughs> yeah. Not to date the recording of this, but last night. The last wild night, card game, the, yeah. The NL wild card game. And a single to right field was booted by the right fielder, which mm. meant that instead of one, possibly two runs scoring, three runs scored, and that was Milwaukee the lost. That was the difference. Mm. There's no implication that this was intentional. I think the poor kid just booted the ball. He's a rookie. He's a rookie. Playing in place of Kristen Yelich, who's out for the season, yeah. obviously even more so now, but one of, if, not <laughs> really the, out for the season. if not the MVP, will be in the MVP race again this year. And he would have been in right field had not yeah. that he's hurt. You feel for the kid, because that's going to be a crushing Bill Buckner-esque moment. But I bet you where there is rampant match-fixing and gambling and stuff like that is not so much, at least in North America, not so much in professional sports, but college sports. Oh, yeah. The NCAA is massive business in the States, massive gambling, and essentially you don't pay the players anything. So I'm sure if you're a match-fixer and you went to a poor kid who's trying to survive school, and a lot of these guys, especially in the basketball and football programs, are there on scholarships and from poor backgrounds... Here's $10,000 to look after yourself and your family until you graduate and you get your first pro contract. I'm sure they're susceptible to it. And we've heard about situations like that coming from boosters, not necessarily gambling. I'll give you $500 a month to live off of, but when you become a pro, you got to sign a deal with me. And I can't blame the players for that because they're getting absolutely nothing and they probably should be paid. All right, I know we made this point in lots of other podcasts, but i got to bring it up now because it is the great comparison. Steroids. Okay. This is the Reds that they're playing, and of course Pete Rose, probably the most famous gambler in the history of baseball, was always a Red, not, oh, not always a Red, but mostly was a Red, and certainly was a manager when he was kicked out of baseball. I think gambling on the sport, especially when you're trying to lose, is thousands of times worse than somebody saying, give me that needle or the pill or whatever it is, so I can be better to try to win. And yet, who is more scorned by the average fan now? The steroid users. I'm the one that said a few minutes ago, I can understand why the players would do this, but... For fans to be so mad at Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, take drugs to be better at their game, versus somebody who's trying to lose. Mm-hmm. Your response? Because <laughs> I say, fuck the people trying to lose. I, no, Although I, I understand why they did. But this whole thing where so many people would, well, maybe they don't, because this is so long ago. But if this had happened now, I really feel like a lot of these people that are so jealous of a Barry Bonds and hate his goddamn guts. And of course, he's been retired forever now, too. 12 years, I think it is. But it's just, I think, a matter of not liking the person to begin with. With Bond's case, absolutely. He was an ass when he was Mm. playing. But he was trying to be better. Don't you want your player to try to be better rather than deliberately kick a game? Absolutely. And when I say that, I'm not talking about the steroids versus throwing a game kind of thing. I'm just saying Barry Bonds, as an individual and a player and a person when he was playing, was an ass. And Clemens, too. And Clemens, too. So they were disliked as human beings. And then when this came out about them subsequently... Easier to hate them. Easier to hate them. When it comes to steroids, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. But I'm asking you to tell me right now, what do you think is the worst scandal? Steroids or betting on baseball? I think 
I would have thought it would be an easy answer for you. <laughs> well, it's not because I think steroids and performance-enhancing drugs is a much more prevalent thing now. Probably yes, always will be, too. Probably always so many ways be. to hide it. Exactly. Then sports gambling. So as far as like weighing them as influences on the game, I feel like gambling and match-fixing is such a small influence, if one at all, anymore. With these sports that get so much money. Okay, yeah. Fine. I'm going to pay off Mike Trout, and I guess I'm going to have to put about $50 million of my own money down this year to make it worth his while. Exactly. I agree with you entirely. I think if you're trying to lose in professional sports, then any fan should view that player with disgust. Especially the kids saying it's Sojo. Yeah, it's unforgivable. We talked about Buck Weaver, and we talked about Joe Jackson to a certain extent. Joe Jackson took some of the money anyway, 5000 of the 20000 that he was expected to get. But we also know he played a great series. Where does that put him? That seems like such a weird gray area. I think that he's an idiot, actually. If you're going to take the money, then try to lose. I know I'm all over the place on this, but be consistent at least. <laughs> be but consistent then, with he your He was your an, illiterate, an illiterate mug, like I said this the top think, of the podcast. I think he was uneducated. Maybe a bit of an idiot. Yeah. So but if you're going to take their money, then work with the deal here. They really play up the idiot part of things. They ask him to sign his quote-unquote yeah. confession, which, again, didn't really happen, but he puts an X on it, which is also kind of silly. There's documents that have his signature on it. We know he knew how to sign his name. But I view anybody that does that with disgust and disdain. Pete Rose gambled on his own games. He says, well, I never tried to lose. I only bet on myself to win. I don't believe him. A, I don't necessarily believe him either because he's lied about it for so long. And B, I don't even think it matters, particularly when you're a player manager and you have information about what your team is doing. You probably have advanced information about what the other team is doing as far as what players are available. That is still undermining the integrity of a game to such a degree that I view that with great disdain and disgust as well steroids that is such a lengthy conversation i know we've had before i agree with you in that i can understand the rationale for a player wanting to do it because there's so much to be gained from either making that last leap and getting to the top of the sport or by taking it to improve your already existing career or lengthen it yeah i still think it's sad that these things exist at all because i hate the thought that somebody who doesn't want to do that to their bodies or doesn't want to take anything that could be a detriment to them later in life feels like they have to yeah in order to compete what's the lesser evil do we accept these things are out there and we just not necessarily embrace it but don't try to ban it either and if somebody's going to take it then we give them the best medical care possible to make sure they're healthy and it doesn't harm them later in life or do we do everything we can like with the war on drugs to try to keep it out and it's not going to work. And it's It'll not going to work. ever work. And just drive it underground and potentially risk players' health and safety that way. This is a very complicated debate that's been going on for decades. And like mm. you said, it's probably not going away anytime soon. But either. Shoeless Joe and Pete Rose, players-wise, numbers-wise, should be Hall of Famers. Maybe Seacott as well, but at least Shoeless Joe and Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame based on their numbers. But I am absolutely fine with them being banned for the reasons I've already established. And the steroids guys, you know what? Even though Jeff Bagwell and Mike Piazza, no one ever formally accused them, although David Ortiz was out it a little bit. We shouldn't have known about that. Got to wonder if that's going to affect his credibility in a couple of years when he's up. But everyone loved David Ortiz, and that's the opposite of the way they felt about Barry Bonds. But the modern steroid guys, even the ones who seem like they might have possibly taken something, they're the ones who are getting the Hall of Fame. Bagwell and Piazza are rather examples. So maybe yeah. modern reporters and writers who actually induct people in the Hall of Fame are being a little bit more fair. I think so. And I agree entirely that somebody's personality and perception as a human being, it's a popularity contest as much as anything else. But Mark McGuire is a great example of a guy. Also well-liked. Also well-liked. Numbers are not obvious Hall of Fame numbers, though, apart from the home runs. Yeah, I know. But and I, even the home runs, especially now, don't mean as much as they did 20 years ago when he was setting those records. No. The single season records. The single season records, at least the career numbers, would justify a Hall of Fame. But borderline. And you mentioned it earlier, Shoeless Joe, his career numbers don't even bear discussion. The man should be in the Hall of Fame, slam dunk. I think that there will come a time when he is inducted into the Hall of Fame, just like I really do think there will come a time when Pete Rose is inducted into the Hall of Fame. In Pete Rose's case, I don't think it'll be until he's passed away. Now, in Joe Seems kind of meaningless then, doesn't it? Listen, I think that a lot of sports writers are petty. And... Oh, they absolutely are petty. They're babies half the time. And they will induct him. Oh, I was picked last when I played yeah. baseball when I was 10. They'll, they'll do You'll it. pay for that now. <laughs> they'll do it out of reverence for his hit totals, but they'll say, you never got to enjoy this, so screw you, Pete Rose. Okay. Kennesaw Mountain Landis, okay. when he banned these players, he made a very explicit statement that they will never be a part of right. baseball. And I think he even subsequently said, I would expect some of them, if not all of them, to try to reapply later, and good luck to them. But we were all sure to get his name cleared. He wouldn't have been a Hall of Famer, maybe. But... As did Joe Jackson. Okay, right. And people on his behalf, even after his passing. 
So in that case, you have the quintessential commissioner of all of baseball history. I don't think there's anybody more famous than Kennesaw Landis in baseball lore. And I think rightfully so. And the man was the first commissioner. Ooh, Bud Selig for whatever it was, 20 years. Yeah, Bud Light. He has this very clear line in the sand drawn that says you will not ever be a part of baseball because of what you did. Even if the jury said you were innocent. Or they were not guilty. Yeah. Not guilty is different than innocent, I suppose. I like that cross-cutting, by the way, when they're celebrating the players are, if they've been found not guilty in the court. But yeah. then you see, and it would have been sometime later, where the commissioner is saying, these players will never again play baseball. That's really good cross-cutting. That is a good moment in the movie. And I presume fairly accurate. And the end, until you get to the coda with Shoeless Joe playing with some minor league team or whatever, an amateur team maybe. Probably a minor league team. It would have been like a barnstorm. Well, Buck Weaver is just sadly watching. <laughs> he was one of the greats. He was the greatest. Yeah, what was whatever. Buck Weaver doing watching a Hoboken game, by just the way? coincidentally this there. Just happened to be there. Overhearing a conversation. Yeah. But that's part of the problem with this movie is that it does have so much authenticity, but at other times it feels like you're really jamming in there, John Sales. You're just jamming in the language and jamming in the fact that Buck Weaver's there and still so sad. And even the guys, Asimov, the author. Asimov, I guess. Asimov. He's even said that the book he wrote, it was more a narrative piece of storytelling than it ever was an actual nonfiction description of events. He, by his own account, invented two characters to help the narrative plot flow. He was in a rush to get it out because I guess at the time he'd heard there were other people writing similar accountings of this World Series. He wanted to fill in gaps where there wasn't anything to drive the story forward, so turned it almost into a piece of narrative fiction. Just reading the bare facts about what we know to be true is really interesting. If you're at all a student of history or of baseball... Or both things. It's a really interesting piece of history. I do like some of the authenticity as well. We didn't talk about this already. There's no numbers on them because they didn't have that till many years later. No batting helmets, of course. No batting gloves. No armor for the batters. They're not wearing anything on their shins or their elbows, their wrists or any of that kind of thing. Because they didn't have those kinds of things. Although I do love the touch too that they leave their gloves in the field. That was apparently what happened back in this era. And my question for that is there's no room in the dugout for a glove. Really? You didn't notice that? A few times they just toss it. Definitely once. I think it's Gandel after one of the plays. Throws his glove down behind first base. Or maybe it's Hatfelsch in center field. Really? I didn't pick up that. That's cool. And then, of course, the point became, well, it can get in the way of the ball or a player can trip on it, which I would have thought the first time somebody put it in the field, I'd be thinking that. Why would you leave your glove in the field? But that was something they did. And I think maybe the suggestion was, maybe there was a time long before this where the other player, the other team, the other second baseman would use it. Maybe that's what it started from and they just kept on doing what they had been doing for hundreds of years, or not hundreds, but decades because baseball, of course, has been around a long time now. This story is set 100 years ago from now, but baseball was old by this point in reality. What did we say? The Reds were 1889 or something? Is that what I said when they were the Red Stockings? So That's when they stopped being the Red Stockings. That's 30 years before this. The first time you see Joe Jackson in game action, he's walking, I think, out to the on-deck circle, and he's talking to his bat, Black Betsy, Mm. and it's not quite black, but it's a darkly colored bat, and apparently he had a bat that was very heavy, 14 ounces heavier than modern bats, and the reason it was Black Betsy was because it was stained with so many years of tobacco juice being spat on and around it that it became this dark color. I think it's after game one or two of the World Series when the White Sox are down and you've got all the reporters cramming into the claustrophobic locker room that mm. the White Sox are in. You've got John Mahoney's kid character talking to the reporters and he's got a beer in one hand just sipping on it and taking slugs while he's answering questions from the reporters. It harkened back to the less formalized relationship between reporter and player they travel the same train together there's a very close relationship you see it on the train when they're talking to each other and just shooting the shit and ring's so pissed off at seacock for lying to him but seacock gives away with his body language when lardner asks him if he's on the take or if there's anything crooked going on strathairn's a good actor but the guy he's playing is not a very good actor at showing no i'm not doing anything wrong i guess i just didn't have a good day or something like that is his response to the question Mm -hmm. when he yeah which does happen in baseball but of course in this case they were trying to lose I said you couldn't score at this movie. I'll let you answer your thoughts on that in a second. But four of the five producers in this movie were women, even though there's almost... And there wouldn't be, I guess, that many women in this story. Nancy Travis, who's been around a long time as an actress, is one of the wives. A few other women, but not that many. But I do like that. Four of the five producers were ladies, and yet this is absolutely a male-driven movie. Very macho. What did you think of the scoring aspect? And then tell me what you thought about that beer after that. So before I do that, you mentioned four of the five producers were women. The production company was Something Pillsbury, 
the we- <laughs> yeah, I saw it in the weird cloud-based opening credits, and I had to look it up real quick. Did Pillsbury fund movies in the 80s as a sideline? <laughs> no, I think it's a Sharon Pillsbury or something. She may or may not be related oh, to okay. anything with the company. But in the outfield at what is meant to be Old Comiskey Park. I think they shot it in Indianapolis at Bushfield or something. Okay. In the outfield, one of the advertisements on the wall is for Pillsbury Flower, which I thought was cute. I didn't know if that was actually an, an ad that would exist. Probably not much to the producer. Or, yeah, or whether sure, the producer so. just stuck it in there because they thought it was contemporaneous and kind of funny. So anyway, scoring at the movie. No, you can't score at this movie. It's a bit of a downer, and everybody's wearing full-length cotton outfits, and what are you going to do? It's and a- John Cusack was a good-looking guy, but it's not like he's a heartthrob in this. He, by the way, we talk about authenticity. When he swings, it's like he never swung a bat before. I think it's Joe Jackson's card, his baseball card. He has the follow-through that looks similar to what John Cusack does when he swings the bat. So maybe Cusack was doing that on purpose like maybe. this. Maybe. D.B. Sweeney looks like a baseball player. For the most part, Strathairn looks like an older baseball player, but I wouldn't say Cusack does. As a fielder, okay, but not as a batter. Not the way he swings the bat. It's almost like he's got a really bad hitch in his swing for somebody who plays at our level, let alone as a professional. But if you watch some old footage from this era, some of the swings out there, man, they look weird, and like you said, they have odd hitches in it, and their follow-through is bizarre. And if you look at stats from the era, too, don't forget, I think it was one or two years after this took place that Babe Ruth demolished home run records by hitting 29 home runs. That was more than most teams. Yeah. In the year he won the home run title with 29, the second place person had something like 12. Yeah. So they were swinging the bat to get ground balls, to just get it through the infield. Bunt, steal. And at the same time, I understood from reading about the casting of this movie that they would try to cast actors not so much for their likenesses and acting ability, but they tried to focus on actual athleticism and baseball ability. Maybe Cusack was a bit of an exception to that because they felt like they needed a hot name to be attached to the film. But I like to think that he had enough ability to make it through the cut. It wasn't terrible. As I said, as a fielder, he looked pretty good. Yeah. And certainly Sweeney looked good. He was in the cutting edge a few years after this. Maybe we'll do that one day. One day. As a skater. And apparently he learned how to skate pretty well, too. And, of course, we know Sheen's a pretty good player. He swings the bat, I think, once. Pretty good swing on him. And we know he can pitch in Major League. So Sheen should have done more sports movies. He was really good athletically in these two in the span of one basic year, 88 and 89. He's got the tiger blood, Ryan. That really... Even back then. Yeah. We call this scoring at the movies, and we talk about can you score this movie, but we've never actually scored a movie. What do you mean, like a number? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it strikes well, me as kind of weird. Maybe we'll start doing that then. So for this movie, I would say a very soft 7 out of 10. <laughs> or if we're going by stars, I'd say 2.5 out of 4, because I don't know if I can give it 3. I felt disconnected from it. I respected so much about it, but didn't love it. And I liked it so more before, so I feel almost disappointed that it let me down. I haven't seen it in a long time, though, so maybe I'm just in a different headspace because I've been reviewing movies effectively with Bev and now with you for all these years. Yeah. I've been doing this with you now for, what, a year and a half, and two years? Yearish, a little over a year. Last June. So even in that headspace, it's changed the way I look at movies a little bit. I'd be inclined to give it two different scores. From a movie perspective, I would give it probably what you did, a 7 out of 10, because I feel like it could have done certain things a lot better to make you engage with the characters a little bit more and understand why they do what they did a little bit better. From the historic accuracy and the way they depict the events that actually happened, I was way more disappointed in that. And part of it is the filmmaker's part, and part of it is the material that the film was based off of. But I'd give that more like a 4 out of 10. Of course, you knew things that a lot of other people... I didn't know some of the things you just told us. So that is a factor that a lot of people wouldn't care about. Even sports fans maybe watch this movie and don't give any kind of shit about that stuff. I thought about that too, but I wondered. If you weren't the kind of baseball history nerd I am anyway... And you didn't know much of anything about this whole scandal or the players involved or the background of the league. Would you even understand half of what was going on or half of who the players were or really what the underlying basis for Maybe that's why it didn't succeed the box office because it's confusing if you don't know a lot of what's going on. And that's why you got to have Christopher Lloyd telling us who everybody is. But even then, I don't think it really makes it all that clear what the hell's going on. And again, you've got a lot of people who are not stars playing these characters and trying to figure out who the hell they are wearing suits or uniforms and they don't really look all that different. They don't really act all that different. Exactly. And of course, they're all white guys. Great suits, though. Some oh, real yeah. starch collars and yeah. some really nice Maybe pins. Costume design Oscar could have been in, or at least the nomination could have been in play. You know, that might have been the best part of the movie was the costume yeah. design. Who so knows? how about that beer over there? Eight Man, what was it called again? The beer was a little bit of a letdown, Ryan. It was about the same rank as the movie itself. Okay. A soft seven. It did not excite me in the way that I hoped it might. All right, fair enough. All right, in two weeks, it will be Halloween. So we're going to do something a little bit different to honor my favorite observance of the entire calendar. And that will be a sort of MMA flick. I've never seen this before. 
it might be debatable to call it an MMA flick, but I'm going to anyway, Lionheart, which is on Amazon, and this might be frightening. So, so it is appropriate to watch on Halloween. <laughs> Frighteningly well, bad. I the, don't know. <laughs> the acting is probably going to be frightening. In homage to Halloween, are we going to dress up as our either favorite MMA fighters or favorite Jean-Claude Van Damme characters? Well, I'm going to have a costume on that night, and I'm going to have to put it on. Well, then I'm going to record this long before that day. So, I don't know. We'll be recording Lionheart in mid-October, so it'll be way before the day anyway. Just be walking around as Dracula, talking about Jean-Claude Van Damme in the middle of October for no good reason. We could do that, yeah. We're also, and this is the thing we're going to do a little different, because Lionheart's not that different, but we're going to talk about, because it's Halloween, our five favorite horror films. Yeah. So start thinking about that now. Maybe five, ten minutes we'll spend on that. We've never done much scoring in this movie, but we're going to start doing it and doing it in a big way. All right, we'll not remember just that for with, the future. Not just with the individual movies, though. We're going to give us top five. And I've, I've got probably 40, but I'll try to think of my five. Maybe I'll think of some obscure ones and make suggestions for people. If they listen to our podcast that afternoon, maybe late that night or in the evening, they can watch that one and scare themselves on Halloween. Honestly, I think I might end up stretching the definition of horror a little bit, but we'll get into that All right. as we That'll talk That'll be in two list. weeks. So we're on Twitter. He is at Scoring Ant Movies. I am at MovieFiend51. We're on Stitcher and Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And Top100Project.com remains the website for the time being at least. Thanks for listening and take your easy mugs. Uh, I know that you will, see? <laughs> That's it. Take your easy, dudes. I know that you will. That's the out right there. Thank you. That's what I was waiting for. Good work, Chris.